Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Saturday, January 14th, 2023, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, January 16, 2023, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Just a reminder, the opinions expressed on bringing light into darkness are my own and those of my guests and not necessarily those of Co-op Radio. We welcome an ongoing dialogue with our listening public. At koop.org, all comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 141st post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Again, thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight, as quite frankly we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, where we invite you to join in our weekly pursuit for social justice. A pursuit where we seek to separate fact from fiction, and where we acknowledge uncertainty, where we seek to deconstruct deceit by identifying where unproven allegations are presented as fact through repetition and the absence of evidence, and where uncertainties are approached from a humble, critical thinking perspective, because our interest is in deconstructing deceit and oppression, not enabling it. Dr. Martin Luther King is one of the greatest inspirations for this show and always has been. We want to celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Day today by playing uninterrupted what I believe is his most profound and important speech that he delivered at the apex of his ideological maturity beyond Vietnam, silence his betrayal, that he delivered exactly one year before his assassination on April 4th. 1967. We will be returning to the speech over the weeks into the end of January and into Black History Month with excerpts and analysis. But sit back and check this out. You can also email me for a transcript of the whole speech. Enjoy. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here tonight how very delighted I am to see you expressing your concern about the issues that will be discussed tonight by turning out in such large numbers. I also want to say that I consider it a great honor to share this program with Dr. Bennett, Dr. Cominger, and Rabbi Heschel, and some of the distinguished leaders and personalities of our nation. Of course, it's always good to come back to Riverside Church. Over the last eight years, I have had the privilege of preaching here almost every year in that period, 
It is always a rich and rewarding experience to come to this great church and this great program. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I am in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart that I found myself in full accord when I read its opening line. Time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexing as they often do in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often the vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision. But we must speak. We must rejoice as well, for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm descent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance. For we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences, speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam. Many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of their concerns is where it has often loomed in large and loud. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the bosses of dissent. Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I am nevertheless greatly sad. Such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known my commitment or my call. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, I deem it of signal importance to try to stay clear, and I trust concisely 
Destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place. And it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away, guaranteed liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Hawk. So we have been repeatedly faced with a cruel hour. Watch the Negro and white boys on TV screens they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same group. So we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village. But we realize that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness. For it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles 
with my song that I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction. Social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, bring about the changes it wanted. That questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghetto without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our bonds, I cannot be silent. For those who ask the question of you, a civil rights leader, thereby mean to exclude me from the movement of peace. I have this further answer. In 1957, when a group of us formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, we chose as our motto to save the soul of America. We were convinced that we could not limit our vision to certain rights for black people, but instead affirmed the conviction that America would never be free saved from itself until the descendants of its slaves were loose completely from the shackles they still wear. In a way, we were agreeing with Langston Hughes, that black father of Harlem, who had written earlier, oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. Now it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally plausible, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. It can never be saved so long as it destroys the deepest hopes of men the world over. So it is that those of us who are yet determined that America will be our love are led down the path of protest and dissent, working for the health of our land. As if the weight of such a commitment to the life and health of America were not enough, another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1954. And I cannot forget that the Nobel Peace Prize was all a commission, a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the Brotherhood of Man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national belief. But even if it were not present, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I'm speaking against the war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men? communism capitalists, for that children and ours, for black and for white, for revolutionary and conservative. And they have forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them. What then can I say to the Viet Cong, or to Castro, or to Mao, as a faithful minister of this one, and I threatened them with death? Must I not share with them my life? Finally, as I try to explain for you and for myself the road that leads from Montgomery to this place, 
I would have offered all that was most valid if I simply said that I must be true to my conviction that I share with all men the calling to be a son of the living God. Beyond the calling of race, a nation, a creed, is this vocation of sonship and brotherhood. Because I believe that the Father is deeply concerned, especially for his suffering and helpless and outcast children. I come tonight to speak for them. This I believe to be the privilege and the burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties, which are broader and deeper than nationalism, and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and position. We are called to speak for the weak, for the forceless, for the victims of our nation, for those it calls enemies. For no document from human hands make these humans any less our brothers. And as I ponder the madness of Vietnam, and such within myself for ways to understand and respond in compassion, my mind goes constantly to the people of that peninsula. I speak now not of the soldiers of each side, not of the ideologies of the liberation front, not of the hunting inside dawn, but simply of the people who have been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution there until some attempt is made to know them and hear that broken cry. They must see Americans as strange liberators. Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after a combined French and Japanese occupation and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of a former colony. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence. We again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. That tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination. And a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some countries. For the peasants, this new government meant real land reform one of the most important needs in their lives. Nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war force. Even before the French were defeated at Vietnam food, they began to despair of their reckless actions but we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. Soon we would be paying almost the full cost of this tragic attempt at recolonization. After the French were defeated, it looked as if independence and land reform would come again through the Geneva Agreement. Instead, there came the United States determined that all should not unify the temporarily divided nation, the peasants watched again as we supported one of the most vicious modern dictators 
Our chosen man, Premier DM. Peasants watched and cringed as DM ruthlessly rooted out all opposition, supported their extortionist landlords, and refused even to discuss reunification with the North. Peasants watched as all of this was presided over by United States influence, then by increasing numbers of United States troops came to help quell the insurgency that DM's methods had aroused. DM was overthrown, they may have been happy, but the long line of military dictators seemed to offer no real change, especially in terms of their need for land and peace. The only change came from America. As we increased our troop commitments in support of governments which were singularly corrupt, in depth and without popular support. All the while the people read our leaflets and received the regular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. Now they languish under our bombs and consider us not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemy. They move sadly and apathetically as we herd them off the land of their fathers into concentration camps where minimal social needs are rarely met. They know they must move on or be destroyed by our law. So they go, primarily women and children and age. They watch as we poison their water. As we kill a million acres of their crops, they must weep as the bulldozers roar through their areas, preparing to destroy the precious trees. They wander into the hospitals with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong inflicted in. So far, we may have killed a million of them, mostly children. They wander into the towns and see thousands of the children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers soliciting for their mothers. What do the peasants think as we allow ourselves with the landlords and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform? What do they think as we test out our latest weapons on them, just as the Germans tested out new medicine and new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe, where the roofs of the independent Vietnam claim to be built? Is it among these bossless ones? We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. We have cooperated in crushing, in the crushing of the nation's only non-communist revolutionary political force, the unified Buddhist church. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon. We have corrupted their women children and kill their men. Now there is little left to build on safe fittings. Soon the only solid, solid physical foundations remaining will be found at our military bases and in the concrete of the concentration camps we call fortified hamlets. Peasants may well wonder if we plan to build our new Vietnam on such grounds as these. If we blame them for such thoughts we must speak for them and raise the questions they cannot raise. These two are brothers. Perhaps a more difficult but no less necessary task is 
to speak for those who have been designated as our enemies. What of the National Liberation Front? That strangely anonymous group we call VC of Communists. What must they think of the United States of America? They realize we permitted the repression and cruelty of DM, which helped to bring them into being as a resistance group in the South. What do they think of our condoning the violence, which led to their own taking up of arms? How can they believe in our integrity when now we speak of aggression from the North, as if there were nothing more essential to the war? How can they trust us when now we charge them with violence after the murderous reign of the young? We charge them with violence while we pour every new weapon of death into their land. Surely we must understand their feelings, even if we do not condone their actions. Surely we must see that the men we supported pressed them to their violence. Surely we must see that our own computerized plans of destruction simply dwarf their greatest acts. How do they judge us when our officials know that their membership is less than 25% communists, yet insist on giving them the blanket name? What must they be thinking when they know that we are aware of their control of major sections of Vietnam, and yet we appear ready to allow national elections in which this highly organized political parallel government will not have a part? This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. We're going to take a short break from the Beyond Vietnam speech of Dr. Martin Luther King. We'll be back in a flash. Don't touch that dial.